Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is absolutely wonderful to worship together. And uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is John. I'm one of the um, teaching team. We've got six of us that rotate through on a weekly roster. And um, today I get the privilege of going through this amazing passage of Acts 6 as we look at one of the many faithful men who lived for the Lord and their life truly showed it. Um, now, hopefully that is something that's evident in, in my life, and if you're a believer, then also in yours as well, is our prayer. A few weeks ago, I was sitting with some friends, and as I wrapped up whatever I was saying, and I'm sure it was really important, I made this comment along the lines of, okay, you've heard enough of my voice. And then I smiled, as often I do, after such a comment that I make very often, and they left. And one of them said, oh man, John, that smile is just like your dad's. And I thought, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. And then another person absolutely agreed. Now, initially, um, I didn't really know what to think because in my mind, my brother has always looked like my dad. I've tended more to look like my mom. And then as well, the grandfather on my, on my mom's side. But something about the way that I smiled and probably more so the comment I made beforehand about speaking too much, it was unmistakably like my father. And the more I thought about it, the more that I thought about my dad. The way that he sacrificed for and served for, served my family growing up, and he still does. The way that he humbly served our church and our church family growing up, his work ethic, his wisdom, his experience, even if the delivery of how he shared that wisdom tended to be a little bit long-winded or even lecturing, you know, when I was younger. Now, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, if my smile is the least of the ways that I look like my dad, that's all right. But I don't necessarily have any control over that. I naturally look like my father because I'm his son. I can't help that. But if I look like my dad characteristically, in the way that he lives out his Christian faith, in his character, conduct, and competencies, then that is something that I would be proud of. And if I pass those same qualities on to the twins that God has blessed me and my wife, my wife with, then honestly, praise God, that would be amazing. In a way, these two look-alike examples of nature and character are true of every human in our relationship with God. He created all of mankind in his image, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Now that's to not, not to say biologically with two eyes, two ears, a mouth right below our noses. No, he created, uh, we are not created to look like him physically in appearance, for he is spirit, and his worshippers will worship him in spirit and in truth, according to John 4.24. No, being made in the image of God, one might sum up as saying, 
having a mind which enables us to reason, emotions which enable us to relate, and a will which enables us to respond. See, God has created us to reflect him in nature and in action so that we can, he can partner with us in fulfilling his purpose in creation. So how are we to do that? Well, that is what we're going to consider today as we go through our series in the book of Acts that we've titled, To the Ends of the Earth. Last week, Dave Dean gave us a math lesson from Acts 6, verses one to seven, the math of the maturing church. We continued on how as the young church grows, so do the problems. These are the growing pains. In this case, it was between the Hebrew believers and the Hellenistic or the Greek-influenced believers that were Jewish Christians. These growing pains were brought to the attention of the apostles and they faced a choice. How does leadership not compromise on what they're called to do in Acts 2.42, while at the same time address the important social and cultural problems that organically come when more people come to church. So we went from the growing pains to the structural adjustments as the apostles appointed seven Hellenistic believers who were of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom to oversee this newfound distri food distribution program that was a ministry of the church. The growing pains, the structural adjustments, and then finally Dave wrapped, wrapped up his outline with bodybuilding. And as we read in Acts, uh, six verse seven, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now today, we're continuing here in Acts six from verses eight to 15. And we're gonna see how that structural adjustment was very, it was an important aspect of the building of the church body. But for the body to grow healthily, every part needs to be functioning the way that God designed it to function. And here we follow the storyline of one of those seven newly appointed Hellenistic Jews put in charge of the daily food distribution program, Stephen. And we're gonna see how just as I reflect the image of my dad, who is also a Stephen, ironically, Stephen reflected the image of his heavenly father in words, in deeds, and in will. And that brings us to our outline. Reflecting God in our service, in our speech, and in our stature. All right, Acts 6, verse eight. From what we know of Stephen up to now, he was of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And from Acts uh, 6, 5, we know that he was a man full of faith. Now we learn that he is also full of grace and power. So what comes to mind when you think of the word grace? Is it meekness, undeserved favor, kindness, gentleness? Well, there are four distinct senses of the Greek word grace or charis. Grace in the sense of beauty, something that's attractive, which gives joy, or something that is charming. Grace in the sense of favor or love, like the love that God shows us in granting us salvation by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2. There's grace in the sense
benefit is usually active. One has benevolent feelings which lead to granting a favor, a pardon, or a present. But both the benevolent feeling and the action prompted by that benevolent feeling are called grace or charis in the New Testament. It is also used in the sense of gratitude or thanksgiving. This refers to when someone doesn't stop merely at feeling gratitude. It's like, oh, hey, thanks. That's, I'm, I really feel grateful for that. It's when they actually make an effort to pay the benefactor back. It's when what they have received prompts them to action. Now, when all of these four meanings converge in a person, we get a person like Stephen, a man who understood the favor that he had received from God and was so moved by gratitude that it prompted him to extend such grace to others joyfully. Now, what would my life look like if I were such a Stephen? Now we'll look at another Stephen um, that we know in the same way. And when, when we look like this, how, how will our lives look? And it's too bad Steve Laurie's not in here either, because then we could just kind of point to him and hey, there's a Steve. So think of all the Steves in our lives. And we could serve faithfully like a Steve. Stephen was full of grace. Now, isn't this one of the words that we think of when the name Jesus comes to mind? Grace. Nearly every letter from the apostles, Paul included, equates the name of Jesus with giving of grace. In these chapters, Luke drops little links or little hooks when he describes Stephen that are intended to make us think back to Jesus, the one who Stephen was ultimately reflecting and had staked his life on. Grace is one of those hooks because Stephen, like his savior, was recognized and known for being full of grace. We see here that Stephen was also full of power, a Greek dynamis, and that is a power, a deed of power. Literally, it describes the ability to perform an activity. By extension, it refers to someone in a position of power or the force of a person's actions. Now, there's a story about Jesus in Luke, verses, in Luke 9, verses 1 to 8, where a paralytic man is brought to him, and Jesus says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, knowing the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders around, who were thinking that it was blasphemy, after all, who can forgive sins but God alone? And yet, here is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Jesus turns to them, and in verses six to seven, he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the paralytic man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And as the passage continues, that's exactly what happens. In this case, both the power to restore a broken body to its created design 
and the power to forgive sins, which restores the image bearer to his original created design, relationship with God, are exhibited in Jesus. Now Stephen was a man of power and ability, but not on his own, but because of who indwelled him, and that is God the Holy Spirit. So we read here, back in Acts 6, that Stephen, with both grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Now, up to this point in Acts, the people who had done signs and wonders were Jesus and the 12 apostles, that's all. But now we see a branching out, and one of the appointed Hellenistic Jews is given this, this power also. But of course, remember, it is God who is working the signs and, wonder, signs and wonders through Stephen. This follows the same pattern of church growth, out from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth that we've been talking about for this past few weeks. So whereas Jesus did great signs and wonders that verified who he is, who he claimed to be, the Savior, God himself, Stephen, by the power of the Holy Spirit, did signs and wonders which testified to the truth of Jesus' claims and his ministry. Remember, he was appointed to help out with a new food distribution program. But here we see him as a living example of the parable and the talents that's recorded in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, whoever is faithful with the little, a bit, little bit or the little amount that they are given will be found faithful with much. They will be given more. So as Stephen faithfully puts his trust in Christ into action, he is entrusted with greater and greater opportunity and responsibility to extend blessing and flourishing to his community. That is how Stephen reflects God in service. So let me ask this. How are you putting your trust in Christ into action in your community and in your family? Now, I definitely encourage you to be be praying for clarity as to what God has given you. Be praying for his wisdom and his direction. Lord, how can I help out here? Be looking around for opportunities to serve. Because it's as we do that that the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us to where he wants us to go. And I take great, great comfort from Ephesians 2.10 that talks about the fact that God has set apart good works for each of us to do to the glory of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're not looking for those opportunities, then we'll miss out on them. And if you think back to what Mordecai said to Esther at a crucial point in Jewish history, he said, there's no doubt that God's going to come in and fill this gap when he knows it needs to be filled. But who knows if he has put you in the position that you're in for just such a time as this. So my encouragement to you, my encouragement to me, to all of us, is in all spheres of our relationships, let's be looking out to see how God would have us move, how he would have us speak, how he would have us serve for his glory. We reflect the image of God as human beings naturally. It is who we are. It is who he created, how he created us. But as believers, we're called to do something more. 
We're called to reflect God in his character so that as Jesus said, others might see our good deeds and praise our Father who's in heaven. Reflecting God in service, Stephen did that. And it put a target on his back. But remember, resistance is just another opportunity for growth. And that's what we see here, from reflecting God in service to reflecting God in speech. Just like when Jesus performed signs and wonders, he was met with opposition, Stephen was also. Consider this passage from John 15, verses 16 to 19, where Jesus had just healed a man who'd been lame from birth. It says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing, signs and wonders, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is also working until now, and I am working. That is why the Jews were seeking more and more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Do you catch that nature and character theme here? Jesus is by his very nature God, that's Philippians 2.6, but he submits himself and, the will and, and his will and activities to God the Father. That is his character. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And he must, not only because Jesus and the Father are one, according to John 10.30, but because in seeing Jesus, we see the Father. That's John 14.9. He is a revealing of the Father. If Jesus' character were different, we wouldn't know the Father. We wouldn't be seeing the Father. Make sense? And by the way, because you and I are called to be like Jesus, especially in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we're encouraged to have the same mind that is within, within Christ, within us, and because Jesus is one with the Father, that means that you and I are also called to live as revelations of the God that we serve. Every human person images their maker, but we Christians image our maker who is also our redeemer. And oh, that we all would. Oh, that I would. That I would be so in tune with the Father, so guided by his spirit, and so submissive as the Son, that I would speak out his words, and that I would live out his words, so that through me, so that through all of us, he would work healing, restoration, and peace in our families and in our communities, and if he sends us abroad, then to the ends of the earth. But hey, be careful here, because as soon as we begin to do this, we will be met with opposition. In the case of Stephen, that opposition was direct, immediate, and it was brutal. It came from the Jews who'd gathered, gathered in the town from all over the Mediterranean. Now, okay, good, I think that's legible. Um, think back to Acts chapter two, verses 11 to 13.
We have a list of different regions where the Jews had traveled from to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. We are reiterated here. Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya, Egypt, or Alexandria here, and then also Asia, which is a region in modern-day Whereas the Jews and the proselytes of Acts chapter 2 heard the gospel in their own languages and then responded by becoming believers. In Acts chapter 6, we see that the Jews from those same regions, from those same towns, who were witnessing great wonders and signs, have the exact opposite response. Again, we see patterns repeated throughout Scripture that remind us of what has come before is also to exhort us to consider our own response and our own behaviors in those situations. It also reminds us of the simple truth that people are individually responsible for their own actions and for their own decisions. The reminder for us as believers is to be faithful to be full of grace and power in our proclamation as we speak the truth in love for God. We do this by being loving toward the people that we present God to. Now there's another place that Acts 2 and Acts 6 draw our attention to, the northeast of the Mediterranean coast, a place called Cappadocia in Acts chapter 2 is a region just north of Cilicia that's mentioned here in Acts chapter 6. And in Cilicia is this port city where Cappadocians may likely have traveled through on their way to Jerusalem, and that port city is called Tarsus. Does that sound familiar at all? Spoiler alert, there is a man called Saul who came from this place called Tarsus, and he's gonna change his name to Paul, become the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's just really fascinating to me that this is singled out as a region that men are from in what will be the altercation that leads to St. Stephen giving up his life for Christ. It's fascinating to me. Speculation, maybe Paul was there, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, who knows? We don't, God does. But fascinating to think of all the same. So here we are. We see that those who opposed Stephen could not withstand the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, this is a fulfillment of Luke chapter 12, verse 12, where Jesus encourages his followers to not fear how they will defend their beliefs for the rulers, before the rulers and the authorities. For in verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say is what Jesus encourages them with. It's also a fulfillment of Luke 21, Verses three, sorry, I have that wrong here. Verses 13 and through 15, where Jesus warns and exhorts the disciples not to prescript their responses for those moments, but to trust him when he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you will answer in these opportunities. for. I will give you, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So our encouragement from these two passages today is to first and foremost fear, respect, or follow God rather than mankind in all situations. 
Rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on Jesus for the right response to the right person, the people that we're speaking to, at the right time. Now, there's a type of marketing that's called inbound marketing, which is all about saying the right thing to the right person, the right thing to the right person at the right time in what we call their buyer's journey. See, a buyer's journey starts when a person recognizes their need. Might be a new pair of shoes, headlight for their car, a new job, um, a pocket that actually holds a lapel microphone thing in, or just a clip that works, who knows? So they take to the internet with a specific search. They have a specific question for that need. And the marketer tries to really closely align their description to the need of that person who's looking for the product or service that will help alleviate their pain point or their need, whatever they might be searching for. Men's five millimeter steamer, headlamps for a 2017 Hyundai i30, or jobs in, enter your industry here in Newcastle, New South Wales. Now it's in the context of a person looking for an answer to a question that the marketer tailors specific messaging that is hopefully going to align with that person and get them to click and go to a web page. Why am I saying all of this? What does it have to do with this? Honestly, it's worldview evangelism applied to the marketplace. That's one of the reasons I think it's fascinating. I kind of love it. And if we were to turn that back and look at the context of reflecting God in our speech here, we would see Jesus is not saying in these passages, don't think about the questions that people are gonna answer. Don't consider that you might have to answer in these sort of situations. What he is saying here is don't script your answers in your mind to, t- to complex questions and then trust that they'll speak to everybody's needs when you are in a given situation. Know the scriptures, know what the questions are gonna be, but in those moments, they need to know, they do need to know that for every answer, every question, there is an answer. That for every question, Jesus is saying, I am the answer. A script will not speak to the need of the person who is asking the question. A scripted response doesn't speak to the person behind the question. It could make them feel like they're speaking to a Facebook chatbot or an automated phone message just waiting and waiting and waiting for the right number to press so that they might be able to speak to a human. And at best, that's annoying. At worst, it could drive them away. What we see here in Acts 610 is Stephen reflecting God in his service, is presented with a platform to reflect God in his speech. This is similar to Peter back in Acts chapters three and four, who proclaimed boldly and wisely the person, work, and the kingdom of Jesus. So what can we apply from this? It's to be people of good repute, seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, striving to understand scripture and its application to our lives, communicate that powerfully, yet always with grace, in reliance on the Holy Spirit, 
trusting that he will give us the right words to speak to the right people at the right time in their faith journey and to speak that truth always in love. But remember, sometimes the truth, no matter how lovingly spoken, is met with violent opposition. And that brings us to verses 11 through 14. Now, in verse 11 it says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Regarding this verse, some commentators point out the order of the blasphemy. First they talk about Moses and then they talk about God. Is that significant? Exegetically, I don't think that this, that this is the accusation. I think it's most likely referring to them, to their accusation that Stephen is blaspheming against what God spoke to and through Moses and what he wrote down, the Torah, the instructions of God and the customs and the temple. That's from verses 13 and 14. But there's a principle here that's very relevant to our modern culture. So allow me this, this application. We must always get the order right. God first, everyone else second. We must always follow God and not another person. Not even a person of God. Especially if what they do or what they proclaim is inconsistent with or goes against scripture. If we exalt another person or we hold them as if they are the only mouthpiece from God in our lives, rather than being in relationship with God the Father, by God the Holy Spirit, through God the Son that is Jesus, we may allow or excuse abuse of power, abuse of position, or of people to occur. And we may even justify those abuses in our own hearts and minds because who would want to be responsible for a ministry collapsing if we were to speak out? Or because that would bring shame on the name of Jesus. Yes, such abuses by people who are meant to represent God, they do, they do bring shame on Jesus' name. And it should not happen in the first place. And if we as the people of God won't hold each other accountable and spur one, other, one another on to love and good works, holding each other accountable to righteous living as God calls us to, our secular governments might. And in my mind, it is unimaginably more shameful if a secular non-believing government or individual calls out sin in the life of my brother or sister or me that I could have been alerted to by a brother or sister in Christ. We must exalt God, not people. We must speak the truth and love to one another. And we must be steeped in the scriptures, actively applying them to our daily lives and spurring one another on to love and good works. And when we see each other going off or living inconsistently, lovingly calling that out, not as a way to hold each other down, not as a, as a way to, you know, 
to pull one over the, the other, but as a way to encourage one another that God has called us to something better. He's called us to new abundant life and anything that we are living with or that we are doing that's not consistent with that new and abundant life he calls us to is choosing death and sin which we have been delivered from. Christians, brother, sister, friends, we must all speak the truth and love to one another. We are called and we must endeavor to reflect God in our service, to reflect God in our speech. And finally, this afternoon, we must endeavor to reflect God in our stature. Acts 6.15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, as we serve and proclaim the Lord, we should expect people to take notice. It won't always be positive attention. Just look how popular culture treats high-profile sports stars who express their beliefs or put what others consider to be an offensive Bible verse up on Instagram. But we are not here for positive attention from others. We are here to be witnesses in character and in conduct regardless of the crowd. We must also endeavor to live our lives consistently in all of our social circles. Are you only living for Jesus when you're here at church? What about at work? What about on the footy field? The internet, Facebook, home? At home when nobody else is looking? Wherever we are, in physical space, in cyberspace, or even just in our headspace, every sphere of our life must bleed consistency to our Christ-like calling. So let me ask, do you look different? Not in a weird way, like a little bit. <laughs> that John Coe guy looks a little bit odd. But in a peculiar, peculiarly attractive way that makes people want to come up to you and ask you questions about the hope that they've seen within you. How is it that you could endure that situation at work? How's it, oh man, if someone cut me off like that, I don't know what, I, I would have honked my horn or you know, tailgated them or something. Is it, are there certain ways that our life exhibits just difference that draws and attracts people to Christ? Character, character, character. It is attractive to people who are seeking what Jesus offers. But it's also a threat to those who res resist the Spirit. And then look at this in the rest of verse 15. The council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this gazing that we read about, it wasn't in the sense of this you know, Stephen's perfectly symmetrical face. It was more of, I can't help looking away. This is, this is just unexplicable in human terms. Stephen here portrays the presence of God. But it's kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? Someone who, whose face is like that of an angel, an angel face, so to speak. So, 
when we're in scripture, when we're approached with odd phrases or things that just kind of stand out as a little bit different that, that don't really have a direct answer straight away as to what it obviously means, we look at other places in scripture to see where they, um, to see if there's a correlation. And we'll do that today with two other people that are very relevant to this accusation against Stephen who have similar phrases attributed to them. So firstly, consider Moses. In Exodus 32 to 34, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's received God's instructions for Israel. He returns to Israel and sees them in spiritual rebellion. They've created a gold idol and are worshiping that. So he deals with that and then he returns up the mountain into the presence of God and he asks to see God's glory. Now in Acts, or sorry, Exodus 34, God renews his covenant for the people of Israel with Moses, shows Moses his glory and then sends him back down to the people. And in Exodus 34, 29, we read, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he didn't know it, but the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Then we read in Exodus 34, verses 34 and 35, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, and whenever he came out, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. Being in the presence of God caused Moses' face to shine. Secondly, consider Jesus. In Matthew 17, verses one to eight, we read the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. He takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray, and we read from Matthew 17, two, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, look who, how Luke emphasizes this, emphasizes this same event in Luke 9, verses 29 to 32. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, as a side note, it's almost as if when Luke says his face became different, it's almost like Luke is just searching for those right words as he builds up to verse 32. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his camp companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Now, quickly, notice the similarity and the contrast here. Both Moses and Jesus had shining faces. But whereas Moses shone because he had been in the presence of God's glory, Jesus shone his own glory. Isaiah 42, eight says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And here is Jesus glowing in his glory. What does it tell us? That Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. 
In 118, it says, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. So Moses' shining face reveals the presence of God, that he had been in the presence of God. Jesus' shining face reveals the person of God. This is nothing short of amazing. And so these false accusations against Stephen are painfully ironic. Firstly, that he's blaspheming against Moses or the law. And secondly, that he's blaspheming against God himself. Yet here is Stephen, his face shining, which at the very least should have caused his accusers to think back to Moses and cause them to rethink their accusation at all. Now, also note that Stephen's face shone like the face of an angel. And this is a little bit different than the, the descriptions of both Moses and Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit who indwells Stephen causes the glory of Jesus to, to be displayed externally as a testimony that what he is saying is not blasphemy against God and it's not blasphemy against the writings of Moses. This was a testimony to, the, testimony to the person and the work of Jesus so that the religious leaders of that day would take notice, that they would, plus and trust their, they would place their trust in Jesus, they would receive the Holy Spirit and become part of his plan to reverse the curse of sin and death to the ends of the earth. So what, we can, what can we take from this? How can we have an angel face or reflect God in our stature? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now notice that it says, and this is the English rather than the Greek, but note that it says imitators, not imitations. See, history is full of imitations and counterfeit religions. They look good, they feel good, they even functionally may be good. I recall a friend who is a believer, was walking away from the Lord discussing how a friend of hers held his own view of the fivefold path of Buddhism. Now, she had never seen him get angry, and that was even after spending an entire day putting Ikea furniture together, which, I mean, if you've been able to hold your nerve for an entire day of putting Ikea furniture together, then that's pretty impressive. To her, that was authentic religion, and that's what it was all about. But it's a lie. It is all about Buddhism, it's all about self-improvement in the hopes that you will attain to something better. Every human religion starts from there, starts from the self, it's all about trying to make yourself better or make yourself acceptable to a higher power or to others. Being an imitator of God goes back to what he created us for, being his image bearers. It is consciously submitting our mind, our emotions, and our will or our agency to him so that he can partner with us 
and work through us to extend his life, his flourishing, and his blessing to the ends of the earth. Now, why do we do this? Contrary to the human-based religions, it is not to be accepted. That would be being an imitation. We do this, we reflect God as imitators from a position of having already been accepted and adopted as part of his family as beloved children. What does being an imitator of God look like? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We live a life of love, is how it's translated in other, other versions. This is an active, sacrificial, self-giving, others preferring, always seeking the best for others type of living. Now, I won't speak for you, but I sure know that I can't do this on my own. I love my wife. I'd take a bullet for her, I'd push her out of the, move, the way of an oncoming vehicle any day of the week. But will I put my own desires, my own preferences, my own personality quirks to death every day of the week out of sacrificial love for her? Pretty sure you know the answer. That is the radical Christ-like love that I am called to. I love you all. You're my community. I love worshiping together. I love studying the scripture, talking about the Lord when we're together. But when we're not together, am I constantly praying for you? Am I checking in to see how you're going? Seeing if you have any need that I can help fulfill? seeing and responding to how the Spirit leads me. Now, sometimes I do, but I think it's safe to say that we, well, I could do better. And I could certainly do better at living a life of love. Now, I love people, talking with people. Sometimes I love talking at people who doesn't. But am I, am I tuned in to identify their needs, their pain points, and to seek to proclaim God's message of hope to the right people with the right words at the right time? Sometimes, in a soft touch, low confrontation sort of way, yeah. But speaking the truth in love necessitates lovingly speaking the truth which sometimes requiring, requires identifying lies or fallacies that are, other people believe and calling them out, sometimes gently, sometimes pretty bluntly. Depends on the situation, depends on the person, <laughs> depends on a lot of factors. And I, for one, know that I need the Holy Spirit to guide me in that. Now, those are just a few examples, but I think you get the idea. Living a life of love is impossible for me. I would reckon it's probably impossible for you to do by yourself, aside from the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do it? 
by God's Spirit who enables and empowers us. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 16, throughout those it says, keep working out your deliverance, your salvation, with fear and trembling. For God is the one working among you, both the willing and the working for what pleases him. Now, I've said this before, this verse teaches us that the responsibility of every believer is my response to do what God has called me to do, enabled by God's ability. By His power that is working within us, we work out, we exercise, we put into practice the salvation that we have received. Now that is deliverance from the curse of sin and death and deliverance into the newness of abundant life in Christ. We don't do this perfectly, but we ought to do it eagerly, wanting to please him, which does carry an amount of fear and trembling. So, at least for me, it brings great comfort to know that it is God himself who gives us both the desire and the ability to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. Verse 14 says, do everything without quetching and arguing. When we reflect him in service, in speech, or in stature, we should do so without complaining. That's, this is the, the complete Jewish uh, translation. It uses that word quetching, which sounds more like an automatopoeia. A, a word that describes a sound. It's similar to the Greek word gongosomoi, or however it was that Dave mentioned last week when talking about arguing and complaining and grumbling. We do this, everything without complaining and, or arguing, so that we may be blameless and pure, children of God, without defect, in the midst of a twisted and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the sky as you hold on to the word of life. So wrapping all of these things up. In Acts 6, chapters eight to 15, we are encouraged as God's image bearers by nature and his beloved children through salvation to actively and intentionally reflect God's character in our service. That's to one another, to the community, whether it's volunteering for the various ministries that happen on a Sunday to spread the work out and also spread out the blessing, or bringing a meal to a brother or sister in need or who's going through a rough time, or looking out for opportunities to reach out to unbelievers in need. However the Lord leads you to serve him, get amongst it. It's also in our speech. We need to regularly study the scriptures. We need to pay attention to the cultural conversations that are going on so that we can speak the truth in love. When we do engage in conversation, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, on Jesus himself, to help us discern the right way to say the message 
to those people who are most likely to listen and the people that he has put us before at the right time in their faith journey. And finally, in our stature, to live a life of love, we need to seek constantly to be in the presence of God, in prayer and in the word. When we are in tune with him, we trust that he is at work within us, both the willing and the working according to his good pleasure. And then as we take this responsibility, he shines through us, causing us to, sh to shine like stars in the spiritual darkness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for retaining your word for us. I thank you so much that in your word, you have revealed yourself to us, that you would bring your redemption in us and through us. God, I pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us in the way that you want us to engage with you, whether it's to be more intentional in, in prayer or to be more intentional in our study of your word or to be more intentional in looking out at how we can help out our brothers and sisters in need or how we can reach out to unbelievers around us. Lord, give us your wisdom. Lord, give us more of your spirit. Lord, give us more of your grace and work through us more of your power that in us and through us, you might cause your glory to shine, that others would see our good deeds and praise you, our Father who is in heaven, and yearn to be in a right relationship with you as we have been made into a right relationship with you because of what Christ has done. God, this week, give us a sensitivity to you. May you make us into the people that you want us to be so that we reflect you not just in the natural way is how we've been created, but so that we would reflect your character, your love, your tenderness, your mercy, your compassion. We ask this for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings. 